missed being here last week. I'm just telling y'all. But we we enjoyed some time away. That is the first time. I'm I'm sad to say that that's the first time in about 20 years. Oh, that's so bad. In about 20 years that we've actually been able to go off somewhere for an extended period of time with no kids. <laughs> and we were telling everybody. I mean, we go in a restaurant, I'd be like, hey, we're here and we got no kids. <laughs> been like 20 years. Praise God. <laughs> Everywhere we went, we went in that church. I was like, hey, we're here visiting. Been like 20 years, we got no kids here. We're on vacation. It was good. We enjoyed being there. And, and uh, hey, I'm a strong advocate. I'm, this, is, this is one of the few times I'm going to talk about it. I'm a strong advocate that when you go on vacation, don't go on vacation from God. If you're somewhere and, and, it's on, and you're on vacation and it's Sunday, go to church. That's what we got the Internet for, not, not to sit at home and watch it on the Internet. You know, one of the things I encourage you to do is if you go on vacation and you're off somewhere, go to church. Go to church. You get to check out somewhere different. You get to be somewhere new. I can guarantee you you're an encouragement to them. All right, so we're going to pick up in Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to be starting with verse 9. We're going to get a, a decent little chunk of it today. Because two weeks ago we, we covered up through, um, up through verse 8. Verse 8 ended with, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. And so then we get to uh, verse 9 here. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by Him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of the Messiah. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. Let's pray over the reading of the word. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for inspiring it to be written. God, in laying down some foundational truths for us. And I pray that today we are encouraged by what this passage reminds us that you have done for us, in us, through us, all because of Christ. And so, God, I pray that you'll just strengthen our hearts. God, let us walk out with a renewed sense of purpose, with a renewed sense of all, and with a renewed sense of giving you honor and glory for all that you are and all that you have done. And we just pray and believe these things in the name of your Son and our strong Savior, Jesus Christ. And the church together said, Amen. Amen. We're going we're to talk actually very briefly on all of these. There's seven things in this passage that it says that God has done for us. And man, I, I think these are just powerful. This is, this is one of the most powerful collections of what it is that God has done that I think you find anywhere in Scripture because it covers pretty much all of it. And these are the seven things. He says, you have been filled by Him. You were circumcised in Him. You've been buried with Him. You were raised with Him. You were made alive with Him. You were forgiven all your trespasses. And you were made debt-free through Him. That was a great opportunity for an amen. I was setting you up for that one. I was getting excited with my vocal. I'm going to give you one more chance. You think about it. This, this is what God has done for us. You've been filled by Him. You were circumcised in Him. You've been buried with Him, raised with Him, made alive with Him, forgiven all your trespasses, and made debt free through Him. Can I get an amen? We're going to talk about each one of these, and uh, not, not crazy in depth, 
because there's, but I do want to get into this first one. You've been filled by Him. It's a powerful statement because of what preceded it. You remember it, it, what he said there was, he said, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Now, Paul had already said this earlier in Colossians. He had reminded us in contradicting the idea, uh, if you remember that we talked about the, the, the teaching of the current day was that Christ was just an emanation of God. He was, when you take something and you, you duplicate it, and it's a slightly reduced copy, and then you duplicate the copy, and that's slightly reduced from the reduced copy, and it just progressively, it's like throwing a rock in the middle of a pond. You know, the first wave when it hits is big, and then they get smaller as they go out. That was the idea of what uh, people taught, heretics taught in that time about Christ was that he was not an equal to God. He was not part of the Godhead, but he was a creation of God, and, and he was a duplicate that was reduced in its accuracy. And Paul had already, in the early part of Colossians 1, or in the middle, he had talked about that, no, it is the fullness of God dwells in Christ. So he's already covered the concept, but he comes back to it, and he does so in order to emphasize what he's about to say. And so what he says is he tells us the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and that's the person that has filled you. Man, I'm telling you, if this, if this clicks, it, it might tell you something, but if this clicks, you're going to get excited. Because he said, it's not that you have been filled by someone who is some fourth, fifth, sixth degree copy that's not that good. It's not even that you've been filled by someone who has been blessed of God, but he says you have been filled by the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. The very full nature of who God is dwells in Christ. It's all embodied there, and he is the one who is pouring out and filling you. Man, you talk about honor, and you talk about putting favor on us. It's not that God appointed some angel to take some bit of blessing or whatever and bring it to you, but God embodied Christ with His fullness and then Christ poured out into all believers. What is this when we think about that all of, of God's nature bodily in Christ? Think about it. Everything then about God, His character, His power, His love, His grace, His mercy, His holiness, His righteousness... All of that was dwelling fully in Christ. And Paul then shows this linear progression that happens. God filled up Christ. Christ came and lived a perfect life. Christ died the sacrificial death so that He could pour out of Himself into all believers that which dwelt fully in Him. I don't know sometimes if we really think about and recognize the value and the power and the majesty of what it is that God has supplied into our lives. We look at ourselves and, and we say, well, but I see the mistakes I've made. I see the things I've done wrong. I see the bad choices I've made. We see all of those things. Nobody's denying that. None of us are denying the reality of, of our imperfection. None of us deny the reality of that, that we can totally mess up our lives on our own. That's why I, I, I have people that will often ask me about, um, that they'll mention something about drinking or something like that. And I'll say, look, I can do stupid things all on my own. I don't need help. I don't need stuff to help me do dumb things. I have successfully proven that I can do that without a drop of alcohol, without a single pill, without anything. I can do a stupid thing all on my own. I just at least like to remember that I did it. Because it's pretty bad when somebody comes along and says, oh, you should have seen yourself the other night. And you go, what did I do? <laughs> I at least want to remember that, oh, man, I, I saw when I did that right there, and that was not good. We don't have any problem identifying that. I think maybe we let that overshadow recognizing that God has come and that he has poured out into us. 
And it's not about who we are. It's not about uh, who we were before coming to Christ. It really is about who we are now. But it's not about who we were before coming to Christ. It's not about our imperfection. It's not about our failures. It's not about our ability to mess things up. It is that He has poured into us out of the very fullness of God that dwelt in Him. That thing that is in you, when you come to Christ, that thing that, that becomes you because the, the, the Bible tells us that the life we live is not our own, but now it's Christ that lives in us. Man, don't downgrade that thing. Don't downgrade that. Don't downplay that. Don't, don't look and allow yourself to be convinced that all of that is, that you're just worthless or you're not as worthy or whatever else because it is Christ in you. Then he went on to say, he said, but you've been, then you've been circumcised in Christ. Now, the guys all get nervous. Yeah. You've been circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands. Praise God. Because, my goodness, you know, think about it. Think about when Abraham and some of those guys, you know, later on, they're older. And God, yeah. And God tells them, says, you've got to take all, all the men and all your servants and all that, and you've got to circumcise them. See, there's, a, there's an advantage to you not being able to remember things. That's when the one you don't want to be able to remember. And they had to physically get circumcised at that point in time. You know, even we had to take all the men. The men had to get circumcised, not, not the kids that weren't going to remember anything. And that was, a, that was a sticking point, actually, for people that were the Judaizers. They were struggling with that concept because they continued to look at the Gentiles and say, well, you guys, y'all weren't circumcised, and that's the sign of covenant, so y'all going to have to get circumcised. And so God has to continually remind them in the New Testament that, no, there is a difference now. And so he, he says here, he says, you were also circumcised in him, who? In Christ, with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of the Messiah. Circumcision was always a sign of entering into covenant with God. It was a covenant. And I, 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 one of the things I think that we miss is, I don't know that we, that we fully grasp and understand what it is to be in a covenant. We think of a covenant like a contract, and that's not the same. A contract is something that really can be broken by either party. You come into a, a you, you, you sign a contract together, well, then the one party can break it or the other party can break it. And there's all of these rules that say, well, if we do this, then everybody's out of it. But a covenant has, it, it, it gets upheld. And particularly the covenant that we enter into with God, the Bible talks about, says that, that He remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. Man, that's hard for us to, to grasp. But once you've entered into that covenant, then there's, there's times where we're unfaithful in our, in, in, in our life. We, we don't read the Word like we should. We don't pray like we should. We don't do a lot of different things that really have an element of lack of faithfulness. But we're in covenant with Him. And He says, there's no longer this need of a physical sign of covenant, but rather there's something that is spiritual. Romans chapter 2 Verse 28 and 29 says this, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. See, the big thing was that that they understood that the Jewish people were God's originally chosen people. But we've got we've to not lose sight of the fact that, that God has all knowledge. He's all-knowing. So it's not like he was going along and he says, Oh, I, I sent Jesus and, and my people rejected him, so hey, i got to do something different. Um, I guess I need to extend salvation to these Gentile people. That, that's not the way this happened. He had a plan, and the Jewish people were always his chosen people in, in an original sense, but yet God so loved the world. The world. He didn't say God so loved Israel. 
He says, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a powerful thing that he uh, communicates to them in Romans, though, because there was this conflict between the Gentile church and the Jewish church and people that were still Judaizers trying to affect the Christian church, which included Jews and Gentiles. And he had to say, look, here's the thing. You need to understand that everyone comes into God's family. Everyone becomes a Jew. Everyone becomes part of the chosen people. And it's not something that happened outwardly. That was Old Testament. That was a different covenant. That was before Christ. And now what happens is you change from having an outward sign to you have an inward sign. It's one of the, it's one of the things that, that the church world today still struggles with missing because we want to focus so much on communicating to people the outward things that we believe somehow communicate that you are a follower of Christ while ignoring the fact that it all is a heart condition. It all is an inward thing that will work its way out. Here's one of the, the conversations I often have with people about this. I've had people that say, well, well, you need to dress a certain way and, um, and when, when you go to church. Now, I'm literally talking about, I've had people here recently uh, in some communications that are fairly broad talk about that, man, if, if you don't wear a suit or at least a jacket, the church and you're preaching, you're just, you're just being disrespectful. I said, okay, I got a question for you. Are there people that go to church and that wear suits, but their heart's not right with God? And they said, well, of course. I said, well, then obviously honoring God is not a matter of wearing a suit. And they were like, um, <laughs> um, I said, hey, are there a list of things that some people do, but yet it turns out that in secret, they're not living for God. They're dishonored. They're people that have secret lives. You know, we had that happen. It's down here in Oxford. There, you know, where Mose is now. You know, there used to be a, somewhere back in there, there was a house and, and there was a, there was like the guy had two families. It was like a family somewhere else out of state and had a family here and neither one knew about that. He had kids, I think, with, with at least with one of them. I mean, it was some weird stuff. But nobody knew any of that. So if you'd looked on the outside and looked on that outward appearance, you would have looked and said, hey, fine, upstanding guy. He travels a lot for business. And the people that were over in the other one, they would have been going, hey, fine, upstanding guy. He travels a lot for business. Dude had two families. Now, look, let's just be honest, husbands and wives. You have a hard enough time dealing with the one you got, much less two. Much less got to keep the two from knowing about each other. I, the guy was just crazy. That's all I got to say. Hey, no sense. None. Zero. But he says, look. He says, so the outward sign was easy. Anyone could get circumcised in the flesh. Boom, it's done. But you're not really in covenant with God. You're not really a follower of Christ. But only God... Only the Messiah could do the work of circumcising your heart, of setting you apart on the inside for God's use. It was something that was done by the Spirit, not by the letter. And so that man's praise was not from men who could look on the outside and see and go, oh, look what a fantastic person he is, but from God who looked on the heart. And so Christ brought us into everlasting covenant with God. Then we see that we were buried and we were raised. Now, this is the indication of baptism, which we just had happen recently. But this process symbolizes and acknowledges that we are appropriating Christ's death in place of our own death, but also His resurrection in place of our coming resurrection. And, and in a sense, we've got a resurrection that happens now. We've got a resurrection that happens in the future. There's this, there's this contrast that, that we're put in where we are living in a current age, but we are also living for a future age. Because the Bible tells us that this corruptible must put on incorruptible and this mortal must put on immortality. So we have been given new life in Christ. We have been given eternal life in Christ, but yet we have not received the fullness of eternal life yet in Christ. We kind of have some of it now, but it will come to fullness and completion after Christ comes back and returns Again, this process of baptism. But here's a powerful thing I want to read you out of a commentary that, um, that I was uh, studying this week. Here's what it says. 
Man, this is so good. I'm going to give you this a couple times. To believe that God raised Jesus from the dead is to believe in the God who raises the dead. Such faith not, not merely assents to a fact about Jesus, it recognizes a truth about God. Now, here, here's the thing. I, I like little subtle things because I really think that sometimes it's the small things that take our faith from being good faith to being really great faith of how we understand something. We look and say, oh yes, I believe that, that God raised Jesus from the dead. All right, how many of you believe that? This is not a trick question, I promise. It's not a trick question. All right, so we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. All right, so the fact that we believe is Jesus was dead, Jesus was raised. But in believing that, what we're saying is God can raise the dead. See, we've believed something about Jesus, but sometimes we miss the fact that in believing that, it's also reinforcing a belief about God. So if we go, yes, I believe that, I believe that Jesus you know, was raised from the dead, then that means God can raise the dead. It's a whole different level of belief and, and, and how you look at things in your life. If you go, well, yes, I believe that God raised Jesus, you know, that Jesus came back. But I also believe then that God, therefore, can raise to life things that are dead. Because now you may look in your life and go, well, I'm not dead. And, and so, you know, I, yeah, Jesus, you know, was raised from the dead. But when you recognize that the God that you serve, the God that is in your heart, the God that poured out his fullness into Christ and out of Christ you have been filled, that is a God who can raise the dead back to life. Then it changes how you look at things in your life. It changes how you look at that dead-end job. It changes how you look at what seems to be a dead relationship. It changes how you look at what seems to be dead things in your health. It changes how you look at stuff because you realize it's not just that Jesus could come back to life, but the God that I serve can bring the dead back to life. It's a true recognition of the fullness of God. Then he goes on and he says that you've been made alive with him. So why is there a difference between that you have, have been buried and, and raised and then that you've been made to be alive? Prior to our conversion, prior to becoming followers of Christ and prior to submitting to his lordship in our lives, we were dead. This is why it's important also that you believe that God raises the dead. Because we were dead. Our sins ruled us. They control, controlled every aspect of our lives because we were submitted to them. Or if you look in Romans 7, he actually says we were married to them. We were married to our sins because at the beginning of Romans chapter 7, he goes through this whole legal discourse telling about how that as long as, as the two parties remain alive... Then, then they're connected to each other and you're bound together. He says, but then when one dies, then the other is set free. And he, what he's talking about then, he says, in the same way, it's, that's what happens with us, that we have to die to our sins so that we can be married to another, which is Christ. That's what Romans 7 says. So we were married to our sins. We had signed covenant with it. Man, I, I'm engaged with it. I, I am connected to it. My life is committed to it. And I want to be free, but I can't get free because legally I'm bound by the debt that occurs. We're going to talk about that debt here in a moment. But it, now it has made me dead. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says this, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh, by human hands. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. He says, remember, that's where you were. I think one of the powerful things about remembering where you were is remembering that you're not there anymore. I think that, that's the reason why you look back sometimes. We don't look back in order to go, oh, look how terrible my life was. Oh, you know, I'm just going to glorify all this bad stuff that happened. No, but to be able to look back and say, this is where I was. 
but I am no longer there. I am here today. I'm moved out of that because I used to be without Christ, the Messiah. I used to be excluded from his family. I was a foreigner to the covenants of promise. I was without hope and I was without God. But now when you take that and you spin it around and say, but now I have Christ. Now I am part of his family. I am part of his kingdom. Now I'm not a foreigner to the covenant of promise. I'm a party to the covenant of promise. I have been put into that covenant relationship. And all the promises that come out of those covenants, I'm no longer outside looking at them going, man, I wish I had that. There's people that, whether it's in a marriage that they're in a bad situation and they look at someone else's mirror and go, I wish that mine was like that. Or they're in a job and it's bad and they look and go, man, I wish my job was like this over here. Or, or they look even at their spiritual lives, man, I wish that it was like that. Or it's that, that, that feeling of, man, I'm stuck in this, but I can't get there. And he says, that's where you used to be multiplied many thousands of times over because you were foreigners to the covenants of promise. You could see. And people in the Old Testament... Man, they saw this. We would, we would see different places throughout, even, even like Rahab the harlot, when she talks about it at one point, she says, oh, we have heard about your God. And we have heard about what he does for you. There's even a statement once where it says, that, and because we heard about that, our hearts melted within us. We were afraid because we knew that your God stands for you. People knew this. They understood, and they, from the outside, they could look in and see. They knew they served a God that sat in the corner, made out of wood, made out of stone, made out of something. He had never spoken to them. They had never seen him move. They had never seen anything happen. But we have heard what your God has done for you. See, that's where we used to be. We used to be in that outside realm where we were looking in and going, I wish, I wish, I wish. And he says, but no longer. Because now you are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, but you are recipients of the promise because you've been put in covenant with God. You're not without hope. In fact, you now have hope. Christ, the hope of glory. You're not without God. You have God. And in fact, God in Christ has poured out into you. You've been made alive. Wow. Then he goes on to say, here's a, here's a, powerful, here's a powerful thing uh, written by N.T. Wright. He says, the verb in this sentence, in, in what we had, had just read in Colossians, not, not this that we just read here, but in Colossians, where he, he said that you... Uh, adding the word with to made alive. You've been made alive with Christ. It's typical of expressions Paul uses when thinking about Christians dying and rising with Christ. The logic of such constructions is that when God looks at those who are in Christ, He reckons that what is true of Christ, particularly His death and resurrection, is true of them also. See, this is, why, this is why we talk so much about the salvation is by faith through grace, or, or uh, by grace through faith in Christ. In Christ. That word in, that is a powerful and important statement. It's not, you know, we look at, and go, man, the word Christ is massively important. In Christ is massively important because when we are in Christ and Christ is in us, then when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Because our life, even the word tells us that our life is hid with Christ. It's hid with God in Christ. God looks and when he sees those who are in Christ, he reckons that what is true of Christ is true of them also. Not because that we've earned something, not because of any of those things, but because that Christ has said, I, I, I make you part of who I am. Your life is not yours anymore. It's, it's mine so they had died with Christ. They had been raised with Christ. All of these things. So when Jesus was made alive, and he said, I'm going to die on your behalf, and you're going to be raised, and I'm giving you life, it was all, everything that happened, not just his substitutionary sacrifice, but also his coming back to life was for us. He goes on then and gives us the last two 
that he forgave our trespasses and made us debt-free. We came across this recently in some of Paul's writings, and I think it's so powerful that he brought it back up again. We have two things that are going on about forgiving our trespasses and making us debt-free. We've got the reality of our sinful actions as well as the resulting obligations from those sins. For instance, if you go out here, um, I was I always I read ESPN uh, in the mornings uh, along with some other stuff, and and I uh, I got in the habit probably I don't know maybe maybe fifteen years or so ago because we lived in Indiana for four years, I didn't know anything about winter sports, hockey or anything like that. I still don't care to watch it. You know, it, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, it's, I mean, it's that thing, I, I, you know, I, that old saying, you know, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out, you know. Um, but I didn't know anything about it, and so I started paying attention. Back then, it, it wasn't on the Internet. That wasn't what I was doing. But I would get up and I'd watch ESPN in the mornings because I had customers that would, that would uh, call in and stuff, and, and they're all from Michigan and Ohio and all that's where we were, and they'd want to talk sports, and I'm like, the Canucks. The, okay, that's awesome, you know. They're like, man, did you see, you know, this? And then they change lines, and then I'm going, that's roll tide, man. You know, I mean, that's about all I had, you know. And they're like, huh? And I'm going, yeah, I know. Uh, anyway, I could have said War Eagle, you know. It's just, but so I started watching because I would learn stuff, and and I would I would pick things up and. So this morning, I, I, I pulled up, and I was, I was reading some stuff, and I saw an article, and it caught my attention, so I clicked on it to, to read it. And it was that there was a, a boxing match last night, and the boxer's uncle is his coach. And, and so the, 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 the fight's going on, and I don't remember what round it was, but the bell rings, and, and right as the bell rings, the... This, this one boxer, I mean, man, he tags the other guy. And, and, and he hits him right after the bell has sounded, and dude just drops on his face. I mean, he drops like a rock. Just boom. And his uncle, who's his coach, comes across, and, and, uh, and they actually called the, called the match. And the guy who got hit ended up winning, you know, by, by default because, you know, he, he pretty much took him out of the fight when he, when he hit him. But... His uncle comes across, and they showed it in slow-mo on ESPN, the app. He comes across there, and he's talking, and that boxer's standing there and got his hands down, and his uncle does a left cross that is, I mean, it's, it's old school, man. I mean, he comes with a left, I mean, he draws back on it, comes across and clocks that dude, and then comes at him with the right, the right just hits him in the chest. But, I mean, they, they had to take the dude to the hospital, man. Not the uncle, the boxer. And, and so, but then the uncle realizes, okay, I've done something bad. And so in the, in the chaos that ensues, he sneaks out of the arena so they're looking for him. There's a, there's a warrant out for his arrest because publicly on television, he assaulted this guy. I mean, the only thing you can give him is, dude, that was the best assault that I've seen. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, he caught him flush right on the side. Of, I mean, hard. And he wasn't no small dude. His uncle wasn't. I mean, he just, he swung, he swung out of his socks. <laughs> I thought about that in regards to this message because afterwards, and in the article then, the, the 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 boxer who it's you know it was his uncle he says look man in the heat of the moment and his emotions and I got hit after the bell he wasn't thinking and we're really sorry please forgiving you know and and then uh, another guy that was associated to it see all y'all they're pulling up wanting to watch they're gonna see this see this thing and and so he uh, and there's different ones that were all saying look we really don't think if he'd have thought about it he wouldn't have done this but you know please forgive him so. There's two things that come out of that. Number one is you got a boxer who got sucker punched who could say, hey, man, I, I, I forgive you. I forgive you, man. 
I mean, I, I understand. I hit him after the bell. You were fired up. I mean, it looked like I'd hurt him bad. Um, so I forgive you. But here's one of the things we don't understand sometimes about the legal system. It is not that person who has to file charges. You have wronged the state. But when you assault someone, they can say, I don't want to press charges, but the state is the one that presses charges. It's not really you that necessarily presses charges. You can file for a restraining order and all that kind of stuff. But the state can say, you have wronged someone publicly, and so we are going to press charges even if they're willing to forgive you. Normally, though, if there's not video, they're relying on you to participate as a witness because they can't charge somebody if you accused them and then you say, well, I won't cooperate. Well, that's not a problem in cooperating because he's on ESPN. Boom! Clocked him. So you've got forgiveness of the trespass that needs to occur, but there is also a debt that now may potentially be owed because what you did was wrong and there's a penalty that's going to occur for that. And so in our lives, we have both the reality of our sinful action, that our trespass, that could be forgiven, if you will, but then there's a debt that is owed because of what we did wrong. There's two different things. So God forgave those transgressions when He made us alive because He couldn't have made us alive when we were dead in our sin, He couldn't have made us alive and us still been in our sin and, and therefore been held accountable for that. So He had to forgive us the trespasses that really are not toward each other. It's in that same thing that, yeah, there's an element of I've wronged Jason if I walk down here right now and, you know, and I just hit him or something or I said something ugly about him. Yes, I, I've, in a sense, I've wronged him, but I've sinned against God. I wronged you, but I can't really sin against you because you're not the authority. You're not the moral authority. God is the moral authority, but I can wrong you, but I sin against God. You can forgive me, but I still got something I got to make right with God now because my sin has occurred against Him. God forgave those transgressions when He made us alive, and He accomplished that because of the sinless life that Jesus lived. But... We've got our debt now that's got to be dealt with. We have this debt that, okay, I forgive you for what you did, but there's still a penalty. So I don't have a wrong feeling towards you anymore, but you still have a negative in the column you owe us. And so what we're told in this passage is it says, He made you alive with Him and forgave us all our trespasses. So that got taken care of. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that is against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. So now the debt that was owed, Jesus paid it. They're kind of almost in reverse in order in this passage, and here's why I tell you that. Because Jesus could go and pay the debt through what he did on the cross, but that just means God owns the debt now. So if, if, if you've got a, uh, I, I got a letter from our mortgage company the other day, and, um, and we've had it happen in the past. It wasn't this way this time, but it reminded me of it. They're changing the name of the company. But they, they put a note and said, we are, not, we are not reassigning your mortgage or anything. This is, we are just changing the name of our company, and here's why. And, and, and so it's not changing ownership or anything like that, but it's just a marketing thing. But in the past, I've gotten those letters where, you know, they would send you a thing and say, hey, we have sold your, your mortgage to somebody else and, and nothing changes and blah, 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 blah. And there it is. See if you go through some out-of-state, you know, company or something like that. And so it's not, they'll send you a thing then that says your debt to us is zero. Right? Because it's been paid off with us. We refinanced last year, and, and now when I pull up on, on their website, I see two loans. I see one that has zero debt on it because that loan got paid off because it got refinanced, and here's another loan, though, that has that money owed on it, just at a better interest rate. See, God didn't come along and say, well, Jesus went and paid your debt, so now you no longer owe a debt to sin, but you owe the debt to me. That would have been one way that he really could have gone at it, but then you truly wouldn't have been free. You would have to serve God out of pure obligation because now he owes, he owns your debt and you owe him. 
He didn't come along and say, well, you know what? I, I'm going to give you a better afterlife than what you were going to get because you were going to go to hell. But I'm going to give you a little better situation, but you're still going to be owing. It's just a better interest rate. No. Instead, he says, all right, look, I have come and paid the debt to the one that you owed it to. And so now you're not married to that sin anymore. So you can now come into covenant relationship with Christ and therefore with me and have a restored relationship with God. But then I am going to forgive your trespasses and I'm going to forgive the debt. I'm going to tear up the note. No longer do you owe. There's no threat of that, that, oh, the sin is out there, but I just paid sin off, but now I still hold the note. He says, look, I so love you, and I so want you to love me and have this relationship with me that I will pay off your formal, former debtor, and then I will tear up the note. I will forgive your trespasses, and I will get rid of your debt. Then he ends... In verse 15, by saying this, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and He disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by Him. Speaking of God triumphing over them by Christ. This is such an interesting thing that I, I want to read you a, a statement that I think encapsulates this. The rulers and authorities of Rome and of Israel, the best government and the highest religion that the world at the time had ever known, conspired to place Jesus on the cross. These powers, angry at his challenge to their sovereignty, stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. Now, uh, let me give you a little backstory here for just a moment. How, how would, in this time... In, in this Old Testament era, how would a conquering king uh, glorify and, and publicly, might as well say humiliate, his, uh, the, the people that he had won a victory over? He didn't have the internet. You know, do a camelgram, you know, something like that. But it took a long time. You know, you didn't have any of these things. You couldn't just put this out there. You weren't taking pictures. You know, somebody could paint you something or do some hieroglyphics or something like that. But what they would do is when they would come back into the city, they would bring all the spoils that they had captured in war and they would have them visible and they would do a procession. They'd do a parade. They'd do a parade coming back into town. You would see all of the, the spoils of, of the victory that were there. They would often have the king that they had conquered, they would have him chained about the neck or something, and somebody would be riding on the, on the horse, the victorious king, and have him and be basically be pulling him along behind them, beaten and everything else. They would have uh, uh, slaves that they had captured from that people group, and, and they, would, they would be beaten and in, in maybe in rough shape or whatever, and they'd bring them along to show, look what we have done. That was the method that they would do. What did they do with Jesus? They took Jesus. Because people were saying that he's the king. He's the king of the Jews. That's what they asked him, are you the king? He says, you say I am. Yeah. So they took and they beat him publicly. They humiliated him. They make him go on parade going to his death. They did everything to humiliate him. In one of his most dramatic statements of the paradox of the cross, and one moreover which shows in what physical detail Paul could envisage the horrible death that Jesus had, had died, he declared that on the contrary, on the cross, God was stripping them naked, was holding them up to public contempt, and leading them in his own triumphal procession in Christ, the crucified Messiah. When the powers had done their worst, crucifying the Lord of glory incognito on the charge of blasphemy and rebellion, they had overreached themselves. He neither blasphemer nor rebel was in fact, he was their rightful sovereign. They thereby exposed themselves for what they were, usurpers of the authority which was properly his. 
The cross, therefore, becomes the source of hope for all who had been held captive under their rule, enslaved in fear and mutual suspicion. Christ breaks the last hold that the powers had over his people by dying on their behalf. He now welcomes them into a new family in which the ways of the old world, its behavior, its distinctions of race and class and sex, its blind obedience to the forces of politics, economics, prejudice, and superstition have become quite simply out of date, a ragged and defeated rabble. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, triumphed over them by Christ. See, they thought, they, they, they looked and said, look what we're doing. We're taking your king and we're killing him. And the whole time he is saying to himself, you don't have the power to take my life. I alone have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it back up again. You think that you are shaming me. You think that you are displaying your power over me, but instead I am simply letting you carry out my plan that was in existence, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I've always had this in the plan. You're being used to accomplish my purpose. You think that you are triumphing over me, but when this is over... When this is over, people will realize you were never triumphing over me, but you were working out this thing that I had laid in place so that I would triumph over the enemy. And now when I say it is finished, the work is done, it is completed, and the cross will forever be the rallying point of victory for those who were oppressed, who were held down, who were cheated out of the life that God intended for them. But now He has made the way and paved the direction. He has bridged the gap so that we can get there. You think that you are triumphing over me, but yet I am publicly humiliating my enemy who has already been defeated. Satan who thinks he has any chance and he's already been made to lose. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by Christ. So the question of the day. I always, I always have to put this out there. The question of the day is simply this. Have you been filled by Him? Have you been spiritually circumcised in Him? Have you been buried with Him and raised with Him in baptism? Have you been made alive with Him? Have you been forgiven your trespasses? Have you been made debt-free through Him? Because quite honestly, until that happens, then in your life, the rulers and the authorities are still in power. They are still triumphing over those who have not accepted what Christ did. Because if, if Christ paid this, this price and we receive Him, and, and therefore He has broken the power of sin and all of that control that was had in our lives, then we have to receive that. We have to accept that. question is whether or not we do. More importantly, the secondary question is, are we really living in the fullness of that? We say, yes, I, 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 I prayed, I truly and honestly accepted Christ into my life, but are you living in the fullness of that you have been filled by Christ, by Him who within Him dwelt the fullness of God, and He's poured out? Is that how you're living? Are you allowing that fullness of God to play out in you. I mean, it'd kind of be like if, you know, if I had a if I had a big container up here of milk and and you had some you all had some cups and I said, Well, I'm gonna pour out of this big container of milk into these cups and and I poured it all in the cups and then I said, Well now what do you have that you're about to drink? And you all went, Coca-Cola. I'd be like, all right, let's try this again. All right, let's pour that out. And let me take out this big container of milk. And I'm going to pour into these cups that you have. I'm not a magician like my cousin is. I'm not a magician. I'm not going to do it. We're going to pour into these cups. And so I pour in all the cups and go, okay, now what do you have that you're, that you're about to drink out of your cup? And you all go, Dr. Pepper. And I go, man, this is a tough crowd. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't do that. I mean, you go, look, I mean, I see it. You're, you're saying it's right there. It's a clear container. We can all see it's milk. We can smell it. It's milk. 
Even, I can taste it, it's milk. I can see it, it's milk. So when he says that Christ was filled up with all the fullness of God and it is Him that has filled you. Or we're going through life going, man, I, I, I'm defeated. I can't ever win in this situation. Wait a minute, so you're saying that what God was and what He filled you up with is a, lo a loser? You can't be victorious in that? I can never overcome. Is that what God put into you? Is that the fullness of God that Christ poured into you? So, or, or is He pouring out into us, and yet we're not living in what it is that He has put in us? We're saying it's something else. It's not as good. It's not... We're back to looking at the container. See, if we change that, that a little bit and we said, if I gave you all a, a, a glass that was labeled Dr. Pepper, but then I poured out of this container of milk into your container, and you just looked at the container and said, oh, it's Dr. Pepper. It's Dr. Pepper. And I said, no, 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 no. I understand what the container looks like. But I'm talking about what we're going to put in it. We're going to put this other thing in it. And you go, no, 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 no. Look at the container. It's Dr. Pepper. No, no, no. Watch me pour this into that container. It's not Dr. Pepper. Problem. Look, it's milk, right? You see milk. Yeah, yeah. You believe this is a container of milk? Yes. I pour it into that container. And what is it? And you look at it and go, see, it says it's Dr. Pepper. See, you've been looking at what your container says. You've been looking at the labels that have been put on your life. You've been looking at the labels that have been attached to your past, to your family, to your education, to your job, to the mistakes that you've made. And you're looking at the container instead of looking at what's in you. That he from the outside poured in and says, hey, I don't care what the label says. I am what's in you. You don't have to be what the outside always says. Let's pray.